Sometimes I struggle with Jesus. Sometimes I struggle with Jesus when he, he tells a story or he lays out a teaching that cuts me right to the core. This is one of those teachings. Jesus tells a story about a good guy and a bad guy. I mean, that's how you're supposed to see it. The Pharisee is the good guy, and the tax collector is the bad guy. The good guy and the bad guy both walk into the temple, and they're both expecting or desiring the same thing. They want some sense of being approved of by God, of being right in his eyes. So, so the good guy walks in with all of his goodness, and the bad guy walks in with all of his badness. But only one walks out with the prize. And it's not who you'd expect. It's not the good guy. No, the good guy goes home with nothing. And the bad guy, he gets everything. Jesus teaches this parable to teach you and I a very important, albeit unsettling, lesson. It's a foundational one to the Christian faith. And in many ways, this parable in today's sermon is, is a foundational kind of building block of our Christian understanding. Jesus teaches this parable to make this point. Your goodness gets you nowhere with God. Your goodness gets you nowhere with God. You can think of spirituality as being broken up into really two categories. You can make the case that, that part of the point Jesus is making is that there are really just two types of spirituality in the world. One could be called something spirituality, and the other could be called nothing spirituality. Something spirituality is what the Pharisee was engaged in, and something spirituality goes like this. Certainly there is something good that I can do, should do, must do in order to get more of the good things from God, or at the very least, to avoid some of the bad things that he could protect me from. Surely there's something I can, should, must, will do in order to get more of the good things from God. That's something spirituality. On the other hand, there is nothing spirituality, which is what the tax collector was engaged in. And nothing spirituality is exactly what it sounds like. I got nothing. <laughs> and I know it. There is nothing that's in my hands or in my heart that I can bring to God to move him more in my direction. Now, if he's going to show mercy and grace to me, it's going to be pure mercy and grace. Something spirituality and nothing spirituality. So which are you? Let's look a little closer at the something spirituality of the Pharisee. If you grew up going to church, certainly you've heard lots of talk of the Pharisees. They're all over the Gospels, the books that tell us about the person and work of Jesus. And, and typically the Pharisees are, are pictured as the bad guy. But, but really, that, that's not very helpful, because in the first century, the, the Pharisees weren't the bad guys. In fact, the Pharisees, among the religious elite, were the good guys. The Pharisees were part of a religious reform movement. 
You see, another group called the Sadducees and then the priestly class, they had become largely corrupted in the eyes of the people. They were out for money. They loved their power. They were corrupt. And so along came the Pharisees, and the Pharisees actually believed what the prophets had said. They believed the scriptures. The Pharisees embraced certain key doctrines that the Sadducees had rejected, like the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, the fulfillment of all things. And the Pharisees actually tried to live a a pious and devout life. They tried to apply all the truths of the scriptures to themselves. The the Pharisees, in in, in so many ways, were, were thought of as the spiritual, religious good guys. They were earnest and genuine, and they wanted this to be true, and they wanted to live it faithfully. That's how the Pharisee is supposed to be seen in this story. They were the good guys. But the problem with this Pharisee is that he leaned upon his goodness to get him something from God. The problem with this Pharisee is not that he did good things. No, certainly that's a good thing. The problem with this Pharisee is that he trusted in these things to get him an angle in with the divine. That's the problem with something spirituality. You think your something gets a good thing from God. And that's what the Pharisee was guilty of. He thought his goodness got more goodness from the divine. And you and I are often guilty of this. Here's how it typically manifests itself. There is an unspoken agreement that you make with God. And the agreement goes like this. I'm going to try my best to be a good person. I'm going to go to church a couple times a month, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give at times, I'm going to serve at times, I'm going to pray with my kids before bedtime and mealtime, and I'm going to try not to be horrible to my coworkers, family, and friends. I'm going to be a pretty good person. And what I'm hoping for, I'm not really saying this or articulating this, but deep down in my heart, what I'm hoping for is that that little bit of goodness in my life will get me a little bit of goodness from God. Or at the very least, he will help me avoid certain bad things. And that, my friends, is something spirituality. I'll do something and you'll give me a good thing. Now you may say, well, that's not really how my heart works. Oh, the heck it doesn't. And here's how I know. I have seen how you and I respond oftentimes when there is pain, problems, tragedy, or struggle. Here's what happens. Something difficult comes into your life, and immediately, who do you shake your fist at? You shake your fist at God, but then inside your monologue goes like this. Well, what is the point of me doing these good things if it's not going to help me avoid these difficult things? I'm trying my best to be good to you. Why can't you be good to me? And the second that stirs in your heart or that moves through your mind, your heart and mind are revealed to be engaging in something, spirituality. You're guilty of it, and so am I. Now let's contrast that with the nothing spirituality of the tax collectors. Now you want to talk about a true bad guy. The tax collector is the true bad guy. I imagine that when Jesus told this parable, when he mentioned the Pharisee, there was like a polite golf clap. Yeah, they're the good religious guys. And then when he mentioned the tax collector, there was like an audible boo and hiss from the crowd. The tax collectors, it's hard for us to grasp just how awful they were and just how despised they were. Imagine for a minute that, um, that the United States was invaded and overtaken by Canada. 
A stretch, I know, but just go with me. Imagine for a second that the United States was, was overtaken by Canada. Justin Trudeau is king, and there's just, just ice hockey and bad beer all over the place. <laughs> but not only do the Canadians overtake us, they oppress us. And they take rights away from us. They favor the true Canadians over the Americans that they've overtaken. They abuse us. They suppress our rights. They try to quiet all of our traditions. But not only that, the Canadians convinced some of the Americans to turn their backs on us. And that was the tax collectors. They convinced some of the Americans to turn their backs on us and work for them and shake us down for money that goes to the Canadian government. And not only do some people do it, but they're encouraged to take a little bit of extra for themselves. And so not only are they traitors to friends and family, God and country, they're crooks and they're greedy and they have a part to play in our own oppression. That, that was the tax collector. So if the Pharisee walks into the temple and he's got a little bit of kind of moral goodness on his resume, he's got a, a good feeling in his heart because he's trying his best to be a good person. And indeed, Jesus even recognizes that, that the Pharisee prayed a little bit more than most. He gave more than most. He, he, he followed the Ten Commandments a little more than most. He even was willing to give God credit more than most. The Pharisee was good. So if the Pharisee walks in with something on his moral resume, the tax collector had nothing. His resume is blank. His heart and his hands are utterly empty. He's got nothing. But here's the difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee. The tax collector knows that he has nothing. He knows he has no moral record to stand on in the eyes of God. And you see, the Pharisee is self-deceived. Was he a good guy? Yes, for the most part. But he thought that that good standing got him something in the eyes of God. He didn't realize it doesn't get you anything. God's too holy, too high for you to climb up to him with your good works. The tax collector, however, knew that he was morally, spiritually, and utterly bankrupt. And that if God was going to give him acceptance and approval, the thing that both of them came to the temple looking for, it was going to have to be an act of pure grace. Pure grace. That's a nothing spirituality. I I got nothing for you, God. You're going to have to give everything to me. I, I have nothing to give to you. Now, here's what's fascinating. If you look at verse 13, here's what the tax collector says. Verse 13, the tax collector shows up at church with empty hands and a broken heart. And this is what he says. Jesus is talking. He says, he, the the tax collector, beat his breast. And that's a a first century um, habit that uh, it it says you are grief-stricken and you are heartbroken over something. So he's grief-stricken and heartbroken over his own depravity. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, you have to be a bit of a nerd to notice this, but what's interesting about this is that the, the, the word that the tax collector used that's translated as be merciful is not the typical word that's used for mercy. The, the tax collector uses like a, like a $10 theological word here. He uses a word that is the same root that is often translated in other sections of the scriptures as atonement or propitiation. There's a $15 theological word. Atonement and propitiation are theological words that help us understand the cost of mercy, 
the cost of grace. There's a payment that is made in order for there to be mercy and grace that's given. So the tax collector is not just saying, have mercy on me. He's saying, show costly mercy to me. And that, that means something. He's implying this. Look, I'm a tax collector. I know how debits and credits work. I know how debt works. I know as I walk into the temple what you are owed. You are owed moral perfection. You are owed my goodness. You are owed whatever holiness I can live out. I, I should live that, gather that, and give it to you. I owe that to you, but I, I can't be good enough. I can't be perfect enough. I've got nothing. So if you are going to be kind to me, you are going to have to exact the cost in some other way. You're either going to have to forego some of what you deserve or get it from somebody else because I've got nothing to give you. And what I'm asking for is some of that costly mercy. Show me that costly mercy because that's what I need. That's what he's saying to God. And that is nothing spirituality. Show me some of that costly mercy. So which one are you? Do you have a something spirituality or a nothing spirituality? And it might seem simplistic for, for a Sunday morning sermon, but this is a foundational idea in the Christian faith. Do you think you have something to give to God? Or do you know that you have nothing? And Jesus says that this question, over and over again in the, in the Gospels, Jesus says that this question makes all the difference because in the end, if you think, if you're banking on you having something that's going to get you anything from God, those who think they have something in the end will get what? Nothing. But those who know that they have nothing, they get everything. So which are you? Now you might think to yourself, man, like, why has it got to work this way? Like, why, why do I need to admit that I am morally bankrupt? Why do I need to admit that I got, I got nothing good in my hands that could move the hand of God? Why do I have to admit that? That's kind of a downer. I know it is. But you know what? It's the truth. And the reason it's so important to have a nothing spirituality rather than deceive yourself and think you've got some kind of something to give to God is because a nothing spirituality is the only kind of spirituality that has room for Jesus. Because into your empty hands, into your empty and broken heart, God the Father gives his own son. I mean, do you know what Jesus is? Jesus is the cost of divine mercy. Jesus is the cost of grace. You come to God the Father with nothing, but he deserves everything. And so what is Jesus? Jesus is, here are those $15 words again, propitiation and atonement. He is the costly mercy. You see, Jesus, Jesus lives a perfect life so that we can say the standard of the Father, what the Father deserves, has been met, but met in him. But then Jesus also in his suffering and death on the cross, he takes the payment that all of our brokenness, all of our tax-collecting evil deserves so that we can say justice has been done. And God the Father is so generous that when we come to him with broken hearts and empty hands, what he does is he sets Jesus into those hands and into our hearts. 
Because a blank resume has space to claim Jesus. Empty hands have room to hold Jesus. A broken heart can lay hold of Christ. So we come to God with our nothing, and what he hands us is his son. And holding on to his son, he then looks at us and says, oh, you get everything. You get all of my mercy, all of my grace, all of my favor, all of my love, all of my promises. And we are stunned. I, have, I just have empty hands. I know, but those hands now hold everything. They hold Jesus. A nothing spirituality is the only spirituality because only nothing can hold the something of Christ. Only nothing can hold the something of Christ. I know this, this, this message, this idea, this, this parable seems so simple, but it is so important. And I think Jesus tells it to us, not only to bring us back to basics, but also to accomplish, to accomplish three things. Jesus wants to comfort and afflict and give freedom. When he tells this story, when I preach this message, the goal is threefold. He wants to comfort some of us. He wants to bother or afflict some of us. And he wants to give freedom to each and every one of us. If you have come into this place today fresh off of some kind of failure, if you come into today knowing that your hands are empty and your heart's feeling broken, knowing that if God were to kind of look down from heaven and ask for good things, you got nothing. If you come into this place and you know that you're the tax collector in today's parable, then I have very good news for you. That, that no failure or fault can decrease God's grace and mercy and his love for you. Nothing. That into your empty hands, God gives you his own son, Jesus Christ, and calls you beloved. I know you're a mess. I know you've got nothing. You are still loved, chosen, forgiven, and a forever member of his family. That is the promise. But if you come in here today, and we are all guilty of this so very often, myself included, but if you come in here today and you are feeling yourself, and, and you might not be saying that you're perfect, but you are certainly glad that you're not them or them or them. If you in any capacity are trying to stand on your own two moral feet before God and before others, if you think that there is any measurable difference between you and the least and the worst, God tells you this story to cut you down. One of the things I'm learning about Jesus is that he is both the safest and the most dangerous person. For people who know that they got nothing, he is the safe place. And for those who think they are something, he is incredibly dangerous because he will reveal to you your own self-righteousness and your own pride because he knows that self-righteousness rather than God-righteousness and self-justification rather than God-justification is the poison of the soul and the great evil in this world and he will work to expose it. If you think you are better than anyone or if you think that you've got something that could win or move the hand and heart of God, he wants to bother you and afflict you and prove to you that you're a tax collector just like me. He wants to knock things out of your hands so he can put Jesus in them. 
and then when you've got nothing but Jesus, that's the only thing you're holding to and claiming in the eyes of God, there is incredible freedom. There is freedom in knowing that you have the thing that you need the most, God's favor and approval, but cannot be earned. There is incredible freedom that comes from knowing you have what can't be earned, but what is necessary to thriving. You have it. You don't deserve it, but you have it. And people who know they've got nothing but have received everything, those are some of the most joyful, peace-filled, humble, and loving people in the world. And doesn't that sound like the kind of people that we are called to be? Your goodness gets you nowhere with God. And every time I hear that, at first, at first it bothers me. And then it saves me. And I hope it does the same for you. I want to close by just leaving you with some words from, uh, from a Christian hymn. Uh, this is one that if you've, if you've been around the Christian faith for some time, I, I'm certain that you know this hymn. It's, it's called Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. I, I won't sing it for you, but some of you probably are already humming it, right? Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And, and um, it, it is a hymn that really is a hymn of... Uh, Nothing spirituality. I've got nothing to bring to God, nothing to claim. Uh, It's only to the cross of Jesus Christ that I cling. And so as we close, I want to give these words to you, and I want them to uh, kind of maybe be planted in your heart as a prayer that you can offer and serve as a reminder of the fact that in the eyes of the Father, we, we have no ability to earn anything, but that what we need from him is given as a pure gift, pure grace, and that though our hands are empty, he fills them with Jesus. This is my favorite stanza. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen.